With skillful manipulating of the press, they're able to make the victim look like the criminal, and the criminal look like the victim. They use the press to make it look like he's the criminal and they're the victim. This is how they do it. And if you study how they do it here, then you'll know how they do it over here. It's the same game going all the time. And if you and I don't awaken and see what this man is doing to us, then it'll be too late. They may have the gas ovens already built before you realize that they are hot. You're listening to Unmasking Imperialism, hosted by Ramiro Sebastián Funes. Join us as we expose mainstream media's lies and propaganda. Se acabó la diversión, llegó el comandante Carlos Puebla, en eso llegó Fidel. With that, 
Fidel Castro has arrived. One of my favorite revolutionary communist songs from Cuba, Socialista, Long Live the Cuban Revolution, an African Revolution, an Indigenous Revolution, a Socialist Revolution. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 105, Unmasking Imperialism, Exposing Imperialist Propaganda in Mainstream Media. Today, celebrities show for empire, calling out all of the liberal celebrities, imperialist celebrities who promote regime change, who promote war, and promote the mind control of the masses of our peoples and trying to distract us, exposing Hollywood's collusion with U.S. imperialism. During today's episode, we're going to examine the role of celebrities in supporting regime change operations. Right now, we are in the thick of the campaign against Iran, Russia, China, Cuba, Nicaragua, Zimbabwe, DPRK, so many countries that are under attack by U.S. imperialism and celebrities are being weaponized to grant our tacit approval for these operations. We're also going to discuss the weaponization and tokenization of black and brown people for U.S. imperialism, the tokens at Wall Street and the White House who are being used to try to push us for another war, and how the imperialists have subverted music, television, film to promote the agendas of a small international financial ruling class based in Europe and Anglo, a white Zionist imperialist ruling elite that are pushing us toward war. And lastly, we're going to discuss the antidote, the medicine to all this nonsense, revolutionary African indigenous and global South movements and people and writers, speakers that provide the antidote to mainstream media, to celebrities, to Hollywood. And joining us today, you all love her, you all know her, uh, the amazing Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Wayne State University and a member of the Black Alliance for Peace Research and Political Education team. Shout out to BAP. Shout out to uh, Black Alliance for Peace. Please become a member and look at that amazing shirt, Black Alliance for Peace. I actually need to get one myself. I'm a paid member and so should you. Please go support BAP, an amazing group, the only group out there that's actually doing real stuff not some whack liberal white NGO organization that's like, you know, stop the war. It's a revolutionary organization that is for peace, African-led revolutionary. Uh, Dr. Sharice Burden-Sully is the co-author of W.E.B. Du Bois, A Life in American History, the co-editor of Organized Fight, Win, the Black Communist Women's Political Writing, and co-editor of Reproducing Domination on the Caribbean Post-Colonial State. I want to buy all those books right now if you guys want to Get those for me on Amazon if you guys love me. Uh, amazing, amazing books. Um, uh, Dr. Sharice Burden-Stelly, how's it going? Thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's going okay. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you. And I apologize for the back and forth. I'm kind of flaky and that's my fault. I had to, uh, we were actually supposed to have this conversation earlier in the month, but, you know, shit happens and uh, all of us have lives. But at the end of the day, we're doing this as a way to inform ourselves and inform our communities this is not a hustle for us. This is not a way to make money. Uh, this is a way to educate our people about uh, revolutionary politics, about anti-imperialism, about pan-Africanism, uh, internationalism. And it's important to have this conversation. And you're one of the people who I've really listened to a lot, uh, in particular online. And uh, recently, your webinar uh, on the international human rights situation 
And what I like about your work is that you connect the wars domestically at home against uh, Black, Brown, Indigenous peoples, working class peoples with the wars abroad. And I find that, unfortunately, a lot of times in the U.S., the liberals, the Democrats, they try to create this division between the domestic policy and the foreign policy and the internationalism. And I like that your work cites those issues that here at home and connects it with stuff going abroad, especially your your work on uh, revolutionary communist women and, and, and black women, African women all over the world who contributed to uh, the movement, not just old white dudes, but actually, uh, you know, black and brown women in particular. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan of your work and, and thank you for being on. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about the work that you do and and also recently your tribunal? Because it was fantastic. And if you want to share a little bit about that. Sure. So, um, you know, my work in academia centers on a few things. One is the um, intersection of uh, anti-Black racial oppression and anti-communism and anti-radicalism. So anti-radicalism broadly, but anti-communism as the sort of broad-based enunciation of um, anti-radicalism, especially after the Bolshevik Revolution of 1917, and just the way these um, are mutually constitutive. And so the upshot of that is that there are so many Black racialized colonized people who will parrot like the State Department line that is deeply anti-socialist and anti-communist. And the point is, you cannot be for Black liberation. You cannot be for decolonization um, beyond some sort of metaphorical buzzword if you are anti-communist, if you are anti-fascist, because as we know, historically, it is the communists and uh, that have been the sort of first casualties of, of uh, fascism. You know, and as we know, part of the reason the fascists came to power was because of this deep-seated anti-communism. And then um, adjacent to that is the attack on workers' militancy and of, of a, a rise of a particular class-based power. And so um, that's one aspect. Another thing that I look at is a sort of critique of U.S. imperialism that specifically emanates from what I call the tradition of radical Blackness. Um, a lot of people use Black radical tradition coming from Cedric Robinson. I've written sort of extensively about why I use tradition of radical Blackness, so people can check that out if they're interested. But um, I find that Black and colonized critiques of imperialism and of, of fascism and of war really are much more sort of people-centered. Um, so in Black Alliance for Peace, for example, we talk about people-centered human rights. And so they, they really focus on how people who are the most oppressed the, mo the most super exploited really bear the brunt of, of these structures of domination. And so it's really important to understand and to um, be familiar with what they said, how they experienced these, these forms of, of domination and subjection. Um, and then there's another aspect of my scholarship that focuses on um, economic development. So modernization theory and economic development, how those were really used as bludgeons in the global South to try to discipline the global South into a particular Rostowian stage, stages of development model. Um, and also to beat back um, non-aligned and socialist or communist forms of, of government um, and governance. And so we still see the effects of that today. So that's a bit of what I do in the academy. And um, Black Alliance for Peace on the research and political education team, part of what um, we try to acknowledge is that right now, at this stage of the struggle, we're in the battle of ideas. And so we really need alternative ways to understand the world, um, you know, alternative ways to 
uh, organ or to, to orient ourselves ethically and politically. Um, and so that is sort of the work that the, the research and political education team does. It supports the other teams that we have, but also tries to put forth um, a curriculum of political education um, so that we're we have we're sober and clear in terms of what's happening domestically and what's happening abroad. Most definitely appreciate that. And I couldn't agree more. And I, also, in addition to what you were saying about understanding anti-communism, the roots of it, I think it's also important to understand and recognize that you can't have anti-imperialism or anti-war slogans or rhetoric or ideology uh, without being pro-Black, pro-Indigenous, and pro-liberation of Global South peoples. Uh, I was just actually listening. Shout out to a uh, uh, BPM. I was just listening to a, a stream uh, with Jackie recently. I, I know uh, a few of you guys are here from there. Uh, shout out to you guys in the chat um, where they were talking about this upcoming demonstration. I'm not going to say the name of it, uh, but it's a, basically a, a white led uh, anti-war demonstration in, in D.C. And it's they have a lot of white libertarian conservative people who are like pro-America and pro-American patriotism. And but they're against the war and, and all this stuff. And it's like, for me, okay, if they're against, you know, the trying to start a new war against Russia, all right, that's good. But at the same time, like a lot of these anti-war uh, liberals or libertarians, they still support the United States as a nation, right? We, we know it's not a nation, it's an empire, prison house of nations, uh, but they still hold on to a lot of the vestiges of US imperialism, the flag, the country without understanding the national oppression and the national struggles of, of Chicano people, of uh, African indigenous peoples. Um, and I think it's a, it's a great point, you know, um, what you were mentioning before. Uh, shout out to everybody who's watching and listening. Shout out to Ricky. Donate to BAP. Yes, please do. Ow. Please donate to BAP. Uh, Ricky is in the chat. Just shout out to, uh, to Big Teal. Uh, you were getting a lot of compliments on your nails, by the way. Your nails are looking fly. Mines are, I just Thank came from you. Work, My little so. baby nails. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I usually they got the good. claws, look, but you know, thank you. Got the claws out. Compared to mine, mm -hmm. I, I work in construction. So, you know, you know how it is. Uh, shout Those out are to the people's nails. Don't be ashamed of them, man. People's, exactly. <laughs> yeah, my hands are tired after work. So uh, shout out to Black Nieto. Uh, shout out to uh, Sugar Shan. Shout out to Eric. Uh, to Big Teal. Everybody who's watching, listening to Salifu. Um, to Wadi, everybody who's here, uh, thank you guys for being. Uh, shout out to Karena uh, Acre Paez. Become a member of BAP Solidarity Network if you can. Yes, please do. I'm a member of BAP Solidarity Network. Please support. Uh, I wanted to have uh, you want. Can I just uh, comment on, on what yeah. you just said in terms of? Yeah, see the, of, the, of course. Yeah, go for it. Politics have both negative and positive um, elements. Negative being like what you are against, but positive is about what you are for. So just because you are against war does not mean you are for peace, at least not peace right. in the way that our organization, Black Allies for Peace, conceptualize it, because it's not the absence of conflict. Peace is the foundation by which imperialism, colonialism, patriarchy, and warmongering are completely eradicated with the people's needs, right? The, the colonized people, Black people's needs uh, at the center. And so you can be anti-war, you can be against a whole host of things, right? But that doesn't say anything about what your actual political commitments are. Fascists are technically anti-capitalist, right? right? And so <laughs> I think we need, so when people are anti, 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 but they don't stand for anything, um, we need to be extremely mindful and critical of that.
A hundred percent, hundred percent. And uh definitely agree. That was my critique. Right now, I'm not a member of any like parties or anything like that. When I was involved with certain parties or groups or organizations, uh, except for actually BAP is one of like the few groups I'm a part of because it's also the only group where there's like normal chill working class people. It's not like weirdos. And uh, one of my problems with some of these groups and, and, and parties is that it was everything like what, what we're against. And it was like this negative energy. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I feel like revolutionary movements have uh, it's like electricity, right? Like I work uh, as an electrical apprentice. So it's like you have your positive and your negative, your night and day. Like you need this harmony and balance between like the destructive elements of revolutionary revolutionary movements but also the constructive elements. And a lot of times people aren't really there for the constructive elements. They just want to tear shit down or critique things or break things down. But when it comes to the non-sexy part, like African, like Zimbabwe, for example, after the wars of independence against colonialism and white supremacy in, in Southern Africa, you had a lot of white liberals and, and just a lot of people in general who were all for you know, opposing the apartheid regime, and that's good and everything like that, 100%. But when it came down to building infrastructure, to building housing, to land redistribution, to bringing power black to uh, back to black African workers, that's when people started getting shady. That's when people started being like, oh, I don't support, you know, ZANU-PF, I don't support uh, Cuba building socialism. So uh, it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it's such a great point And it's something that um, that is related to to what we're talking about with celebrities too, because part of any revolutionary movement of of socialism is about constructing art and media and entertainment and music. Uh, it's such a vital part to our movements, and unfortunately, U.S. imperialist media, Hollywood, they dominate the entertainment industry worldwide. And uh, in many ways, I've talked about this before on previous streams. In a way, uh, Hollywood is a giant spell making machine where they put out these movies that make you think that we should live lives a certain way. And you are trained and programmed to follow these celebrities and, and singers and actresses, actors uh, who are then putting out propaganda, talking points, supporting wars and, you know, supporting the color revolution in Iran, uh, supporting sending billions of dollars to Ukraine, supporting uh, this fake movement of hip hop in Cuba that supports imperialism. Uh, and so it just really bothers me. And I like your work because, you know, you talk a lot about the psych psychological aspect of uh, imperialism. So uh, before we start, maybe is there anything recently that you've seen in, in mainstream news or media? Uh, you know, it can be international or local that that you feel like is something related to celebrities kind of promoting empire and imperialism or like what's one kind of mass brainwashing thing that you've seen um, that a lot of people are kind of falling for? Where do I begin? I mean, you know, um, we have people shaving their heads and cutting their hair for, um, you know, when things for the sort of color revolution in Iran. And I don't want to I don't want to diminish the sort of endogenous and internal actual righteous um, uh, struggle that's happening internally within Iran. But that's completely different than people touting State Department lines. Um, and thinking that they're being progressive when literally they just sound like Anthony Blinken. So there was that. There was this the whole um, rigmarole hubbub around Tory Lanes and Megan Thee Stallion, which is fine, right? But and, and as if that the 
our understanding of domestic violence with intracommunal domestic violence, our understanding of the position of women hinged on that case. I bet you a hundred women have been shot in the feet and otherwise since that case was resolved, right? In, in Megan Thee Stallion's favor and nobody cares. And so we have people from, you know, Viola Davis to whomever else posting all this stuff on their social media about all different types of foreign policy that they don't know anything about. They simply don't have the range. They don't have the bars. They don't know anything. Right. They just um, see whatever is on CNN or MSNBC and then misuse their platform to take a position that is inept. And so we, we see it all the time. I don't, you know, we've seen countless Ukraine flags. I think, mm -hmm. who what, was it? Um, Sean Penn got a hopped in his fucking kayak and went over there. You know, so it's like, <laughs> you know, yeah, what's, 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 what's the, the black snowman name? Terrell Star. Like, you know, we got these people Terrell. that go and, um, you know, they basically are our shields of empire, like like the um the you know the title of this episode. And so, um, you know, the problem is not just celebrity though. The problem mm -hmm. is that living in a celebrity culture produces celebritization, whereby that's then how we um, understand our politics. And so, it's coupled with the sort of great man and great woman approach to history. That is. Um, about, you know, we, we think that, you know, Martin Luther King, he freed the slaves and he put his cape back on and he came and he freed the blacks from Jim Crow, that it's it's like one man or one person, which completely erases the long history of movement building, the painstaking work it takes to belong to organizations, to struggle within organizations, to build movements, to, to sustain institutions in the face of state repression. We think it's just all you have to do is have the correct person, the next messiah, and that's what's going to free us. And that's completely incorrect. And this has been exacerbated, this celebritization has been exacerbated, but like influencer culture to the point where even our select, I just call them elected influencers, our, our so-called politicians, <laughs> they like spend, they, they take, you know, they take their, these brave stands on Twitter and then fold like a lawn chair in Congress, wouldn't bust a grape in a fruit fight in Congress um, because the point is to be able to um, get votes, right? It's basically likes. They're, they're basically trying to get likes, but in the form of votes. And so this is the way that we understand politics. This is how people um, treat academia. It's how they treat their organizations. And then there's this whole, and then when people feel like they're not being censured in organizations, they understand that as violence. And all of this is part of this celebritization, this, influ this influencerization of our society um, that has like a long, long history, right? So like Gerald Horn, who writes about everything, um, he wrote about like the, the Hollywood 10 who were blacklisted in Hollywood and the long sort of campaign, anti-communist campaign in Hollywood, um, starting back in like the 1940s, 1930s even. And so, um, Celebrity culture produces this whole celebritization of how we relate to each other, which I think um, has a, a deeply anti-radical um, effect to the point where we think, you know, Beyonce is wearing a black, you know, a beret and a, a black, you know, a, a Black Panthers uniform, then somehow that is radical. Somehow that is that that is what it means to be revolutionary, um, as opposed to you know that meaning you have a good costume designer. So like we we misunderstand so much because of celebrity culture. Yeah, fantastic. No, I definitely agree. And I like that uh, term elected influencers. I'm definitely going to steal that. I also like the term, like when they talk about CNN or mainstream media as objective news, I just call them uh, content creators who put out a certain mm -hmm. opinion. Because one of the things we're told 
like I went to school for journalism when I was an undergrad uh, back in the day in college. And one of the things you're told is media is supposed to be unbiased, neutral. They're not supposed to have a perspective. And yet they do the very opposite. A lot of mainstream media, they promote imperialist talking points. They promote views that are antithetical to being objective. We know there is such no such thing anyway. Like I, I'm just straight up when I tell people, I'm like, this is my perspective. You can still point out an objective truth, but you can do it in a way that um, you're straight up about where you're coming from. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about is in particular when it comes to media and color revolutions is the use of music in promoting regime change. So I don't know if you follow this. I think you did. Um, and back in 2020, there was this attempted color revolution in Cuba uh, that they called the San Isidro movement. San Isidro being a particular neighborhood in Havana, where you have underground rappers and hip hop artists who are doing music and performances against the Cuban uh, communist government that is African, that is working class led, that participated in the liberation of uh, the freedom struggles in Africa. Uh, and yet mainstream media is inverting reality. They're making it seem like the Cuban government is this racist colonial government that's uh, oppressing people. So what I want to do is I just quickly want to play a clip. This is from a concert uh, in our favorite place, guys, uh, Little Havana, Miami. Um, <laughs> you know, obviously sarcastic. Um, this is, they were Gente de Sona, and, and these are the, some of the artists from uh, the San Isidro movement uh, part, participating in a concert in Miami. So I'm going to play this, uh, and I'm going to read a little bit more from this article, uh, and we'll try to talk a little bit about, in particular, because I think Cuba is such a, a perfect example uh, of how celebrities and and the, the psychology of brainwashing uh, behind this. So I'm going to play this. Yes. 
So uh, you have people, all the gusanos in Miami with signs that say uh, SOS Cuba, which whenever we see hashtag SOS, you already know what the fuck they're trying to do with that, right? Uh, Any to getting active. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, yeah, so I just, you know, I wanted to show that because, like, I think a lot of people forgot about that. Um, but that that's the kind of stuff that they're doing. Like, that that's the kind of stuff that, unfortunately, like, so many people fall for. This is a famous photo that came out around that time. Uh, Patria y Vida. Uh, some of the, the artists, in, in quotation marks, uh, their music is whack, by the way. Like, there's so many other um, reggaetoneros or hip-hop artists from Cuba who are pro-revolution that are much better. Um, but this is the image that they circula uh, circulated. And I wanted to bring this up because I feel like this is a perfect example of how, uh, in particular, when it comes to Cuba, they're, the marketing people at the CIA were like, all right, guys, this whole Batista, uh, white dictator from the 50s branding is not working. We need to have some black and brown people who are counter-revolutionary and anti-communist. And we need to use music and we need to try to appeal to these different communities. And I feel like this image, like these little things like that, like a lot of people don't notice it. Uh, but I feel like mentally, like seeing that image, Patria y Vida, which means uh, fatherland and life, which is a, a anti-communist slogan against patria o muerte, no, which is fatherland or death. Or right. Exactly. exactly. Patria o muerte. And that's the thing. Like, that's the shit that pissed me off even more is like, they make it seem like, oh, we're for life. You guys are for death. But it's like, no, patria o muerte is like fatherland or death. Like, we're fighting for our country to to the death. And it's not just like a, uh, it's not like saying like the U.S., right? It's like an African country. It's an indigenous country. And they subverted that slogan. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on this? Like, I, I feel like pretty soon Cuba has been kind of under the radar recently. Um, but I feel like pretty soon this is going to come up again. And, and what are your thoughts on the use of like these hip hop artists in uh, not just in Latin America, but all over the world to promote uh, regime change? Yeah, I mean, I think so. So the CIA obviously has a long history of this. We, if we think about the the, the Congress of Cultural Freedom um, or AMSAC, which is I think is the American Society of African Culture in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, if we think about the jazz tours that, um, you know, a bunch of, you know, so Satchmo and a whole bunch of people were doing um, on behalf of like the U.S. State Department, like the, the U.S. state has always used culture as class warfare and this is what we need to understand propaganda celebrity culture is class warfare so so you know paul robeson has this quote he said every artist every scientist every writer must decide now where he stands the artist must take sides he must elect to fight for freedom or for slavery i have made my choice i had no alternative and so what we have to understand is that when these people when these celebrities are um caping for empire they are taking a side they are our class enemies. They are, uh, and even if they come from poor or humble backgrounds, working class backgrounds, they're because they're upholding um, class interests, because they're upholding imperialism, these are our class enemies, period. And we have to understand that. And so um, I think that that's the first thing. Um, the ruling class always seems to understand things that the left is very is ambivalent about for whatever reason, mm. right? <laughs> the the ruling class, they're internationalists. The ruling class understand the role of culture and propaganda, right? They understand that that shit is not, so 
when it comes from the left or it comes from a, a, a socialist country, so-called leftists call this authoritarianism or they call it, you know, anti-democratic. But when it's coming, but somehow it's acceptable when it's coming from the ruling class, they understand they understand the tools of warfare. They understand class war and they understand that we are at war and not just in Ukraine, but war against colonized people, war, war against racialized people. Um, and so if we don't understand celebrity culture in that way, then we think it's just, you know, people like, let us have stuff. Like, you guys hate fun. You hate, what's the you know, black girl joy, black boy joy, whatever. And it's mm. like, you're, you are directly participating in the terms of your immiseration when you not only, it's, it's one thing to like these folks, right? It's another thing to parrot their political lines. I don't go to Beyonce, I go to Beyonce for, to twerk. I don't go to Beyonce yeah. for my <laughs> politics, right? right? And I think that that's the problem is that they become conflated. We think that people who have money, people who have um, influence or people who have access are somehow fit to lead. And this is particularly true for Black people. Black people mm -hmm. are like the only group in the world that has leaders. I don't know if you noticed this, but you don't, who is the leader of the Latino community in America, in the United None. States? It's Nobody. only black Not AOC. people to the point where you have <laughs> yeah. goofy ass Isle Sharpton at Tyree Nichols funeral. Why? <laughs> yeah. Why? Why are you there sweating your perm out? I don't get it. So anyway, you know, I think, you know, um, and this is what, and this is, this is why we're losing, right? The working class, um, working people, we are the majority in the world. Racialized and colonized people are the majority in the world but we're losing because we don't understand how these tools operate. And anytime we refuse to use them or let people tell us what those tools are, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, anti-democratic, then again, we're letting people who are, who are, who are wholly invested in our oppression tell us how we ought to be uh, moving. The other thing that I'll say is that we cannot engage in race reductionism and assume that just because Cuban, th these Cubans are black or of, or, or of African descent that they're objectively revolutionary. That's bullshit. We know that. We've, we've seen enough Condoleezza Rice's and Kamala Harris's and <laughs> Ilhan Omar's and, um, you know, the one from Massachusetts, I forgot. Um, I forget her name. Ayanna Presley. Yeah. We've seen enough Ayanna of Presley. those to know that, you know, as we say, all skin folk ain't kin folk in that people really believe in this imperialist project. And that, you know, I've talked about elsewhere ad nauseum, like the but for project. People really do believe the United States will be the greatest country in the world, but for racism, right? right. They really believe in this, the idea that the United States stands for human rights and democracy, um, inclusion, all of these things. And the only caveat to it is racism. So if we get rid of racism, then everything else would be fine. And we know that this is, is farcical. Number one, you can't get rid of racism without getting rid of imperialism. And also... Um, you know, racism has a material base. It's not hearts and minds. It's not ideas. And so um, I really think that, again, the CIA, the State Department, the, you know, the ruling class, they really understand the identity politics. And they mm -hmm. have an uncanny ability to co-opt and transform things that started out as revolutionary. They take our shit and then and they yep. make, they they harness it to counter revolutionary ends. <laughs> and so, you know, um, and great, I will say, you know, history is on their side. Dialect, you know, like the, the unrolling of history is on their side, because this is in the United States is a right wing settler colonial slaveocracy. So so history is on their side, power is on their side, authority is on their side, but still, like we 
as leftists play ourselves so frequently um, because we re reproduce celebrity culture and celebritization in our in the way that we interact with each other, in the way that we interact with our organizations, um, in the way we interact with society. So we're, you know, again, we're hoisting ourselves on our own petard. Such a great point, fantastic point. And as as I'm listening to you say that, I'm thinking about all of the people within the left who are so enamored with the idea of making it big and being a celebrity themselves and who fall for the spell of their own weapon of the camera like this. For example, like the other day, um, you know, because I, I used to uh, listen to a lot of your streams um, like maybe like a year ago. And recently I was listening to your your last stream, uh, the, the last episode that you did. And I really liked it a lot. Um, I liked it a lot because you pointed out something that you were like, there's so much more work to do beyond this. And I feel like so many people get stuck on just like streaming and, and making money and, and, and making this like their little empire, the little media empire. I used to work at Telesur back in the day. I don't know. Are you familiar with Telesur? The, mm -hmm, the outlet? Of course. Yeah. So I used to work for them. And there were a lot of people who would go into that space, a lot of liberals or, or random white people, I used to call them workationers because it was in Ecuador in, in South America. And they were just there because they wanted to have a name for themselves and they wanted their own show. And they kind of fell in love with the camera. They didn't really care about the politics and the, and, and the meaning behind it. Like uh, they kind of let, for me, technology is a weapon. Like this is a, a weapon, a way of uh, spreading information, uh, spreading revolutionary ideology. But I feel like sometimes people get so obsessed with celebrity culture. And even if they start off with good intentions from the left, they kind of fall into that trap. And I really like that video you did because it just showed me and, and so many other people like there's so much more to this, you know, like actually organizing in real life, you know, writing, doing the things that you're doing. Um, and we shouldn't buy into this dream of like, being a, a a big streamer, a million dollar streamer, and celebrity, and AOC, and 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 all this kind of like stuff, you know. Um, so I really enjoy that. I wanted to to mention that because I feel like a lot of people in the left, in particular, uh, get they buy into this fantasy of like being the next big, you know, content creator. Uh, and I feel like that's that's a big challenge that we have to deal with the influencers as well, in particular, on TikTok. Well, let's and it really clear. changes people. Yeah. For many people, revolution is a brand. Like, let's be mm -hmm. clear about that. With the rise of the yep. gig economy, with the with the increasing um, precarity, right? Mm -hmm. Money and making money and being able to live a good life feels the all the more sort of like urgent. And so, yeah. people have brands, not politics. Mm -hmm. And I think. That is why people are so invested in becoming the next big thing, you know, the big idea, as Doja Cat said and Tia Tamara, because, <laughs> you know, and, and then there's something, you know, I talk a lot about schadenfreude and one aspect of, of schadenfreude is like taking pleasure in the demise of another, in the suffering of mm. another. But one thing about schadenfreude is that it's, it's a form of protection. And so there's a way that people think accumulating wealth, um, a particular type of class ascension and, um, 
having a level of prominence will protect you or shield you from violence and shield you from being treated like those niggas or treated like those poor people, right? And so it's a, it becomes like a form of protection, um, which in a, in, a, in a sense, one can understand that, right? You wanna be shielded as much as possible when you're vulnerable to, vi to state violence, when you're vulnerable to occupying forces like the pigs. You wanna try to have a buffer between that. But okay, but just keep it 100. Like you can't say that you're for the people. You can't say you're doing this as part of a socialist struggle. You can't say that you're doing this for any political reason. I think that that's the problem. People think that their own individual success stands in for the well-being of the working class or stands in for the well-being of colonized or racialized people. And it's just, it's unethical, it's unprincipled and it's dishonest. And then when you critique people, they call you violent. Right. They call you. They say that you're providing cover for this or that. They try to drag you and cancel you. Um, and so they're enacting the very violence in the service of their own protection and the service of their own schadenfreude in the name of radical politics. So, yeah, it's real crazy. Yeah. It's crazy to see that uh, as you're saying that I, I can think of so many people already who are like that, that I've uh come across, you know, in a lot of different spaces. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you is, as somebody who is critical of mainstream media and is aware of a lot of the things that are going on and the programming and the mind control and the psychology behind it, uh, what was your journey of radicalization like? Did you always sort of have that upbringing or was there like a moment in your development politically that really set the tone for you to be able to see through the propaganda, see beyond the celebrities? You know, it's interesting. Um, I don't come from a movement background. I joined an organization like three years ago, right? Um, and I even when I, I still had a sort of a radical politic before joining an organization. But if you listen to those very old podcasts, I would say, you know, I'm not an activist. I'm not an organizer. I'm an academic. Um, but there came a limit to that where I felt like I could say all this dope shit. I can have the right ideas. But if they're just entrapped in like the Ebony Tower, if they're not <laughs> accessible or applied to regular people, then it doesn't mean shit. It's just another form of accumulation in this in this um, respect to knowledge accumulation, which is, you know, it's like Scrooge McDuck, like diving into his gold coins and shit. So, um, <laughs> you know, yeah. and so I. I really became radicalized through study, like in college, mm -hmm. um, you know, I was a, you know, political science and African and African-American studies major. I learned about Walter Rodney in undergrad. One of my professors was actually oh, a yeah. member of the WPA and, you know, a class on economic development in Africa and a class on radical politics, like politics influenced me to get a PhD in African American studies. And then once I got to college, I was going to be a development economist. I was going to do my PhD on expert processing zones. Um, well, initially when I applied, interestingly, when I applied to uh, to graduate school, I, I was studying uh, Black feminism. <laughs> wow. And then I grew out of that. But uh, whatever, you know, whatever. <laughs> Damn. Uh, let me not say that. I'm just kidding. Black feminist. I didn't grow out of it. I just didn't. Okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't drag me, please. Okay. So, um, <laughs> but, you know, then I started, like, when I was asking questions about economic development, I began to ask questions about socialism and why there were no political economists in my department and all, a whole host of other things that brought me where I am today. But it really was through study. And then, you know, joining my organization, um, there are two things that will change your life. 
joining an organization and falling in love. And they really mm. are linked in a particular way. But, um, you know, joining my organization was just, it gave me a different language. It gave me a different type of commitment and responsibility to speak differently, to ask more important and more relevant questions. And so, um, yeah, but I came to consciousness through study, which is why I'd be so offended when, when people are, you know, so anti-intellectual and so it makes it yep. seem like reading is some sort of class project like you know reading you telling niggas to read yes we're telling people to read <laughs> some of the most well-read people i know are are regular people they read you know mm -hmm. they read on their way to work they read after work they read to their kids some of the dumbest people i know are academics and so you know this idea that reading is somehow classes don't get me started on that term anyway um yeah is is crazy you know and it and and but these are these are you know some of the same types of people that can tell you every single sports statistic they can tell you every single thing that beyonce is doing they know the latest thing on the shade room but somehow reading books studying collectively somehow that's a class project right somehow that's ableist and so you know um study is really important man as is practice, because, you know, as we know, Fred Hampton said, you know, theory ain't shit without practice. And I think that's true. Um, but at the same time, you know, practice without theory, without study is just movement. So, yeah, most definitely. Shout out to Emma. We need more gorilla intellectuals for the revolution. That's why we got Dr. CBS, a revolution, not just a, a bourgeois uh, academic, but a revolutionary uh, intellectual. And I like that you yeah. point out the importance of theory and and studying because i i definitely agree i feel like a lot of the in particular i feel like it's a, a phenomenon that happens a lot in the in the first world in the u.s where you have people i, I feel like it's also racist too because like when you when a lot of white left groups are like oh we can't do theory because then we can't get any uh black or brown people to get interested in our group that's assume, like that's we're, like, we're assuming. like we're completely inept like we can't right like oh you can't hurt, bring a book things. You think they can actually read like the fuck? Like I've, I, I, um, you know, just recently finished a uh, volume one of capital and uh, I'm still working on volume two, but yeah, it's important to study. It's important to understand theory as well as practice. And if you look at revolutionary uh, black indigenous movements internationally, study and literacy has been a, a crucial part. I mean, look at the new jewel movement in Grenada, Maurice Bishop encouraged a uh, literacy had a whole brigade of literacy that traveled across the island of Grenada with books, not just about Marxism and communism, but about uh, African history, international history. Uh, the Cuban Revolution sent uh, literacy brigades uh, in, in Zimbabwe, Mozambique, uh, Botswana. There were so many uh, literacy campaigns and Angola as well. And I think it, it really does bother me as well when people try to dumb it down or try to uh, separate theory from practice because you do need theory and and i'm kind of in the same boat as you like my family's not a uh, revolutionary as well my family's actually uh, pretty right wing and pretty conservative so i came to a lot of this stuff through reading politics on my own and learning about communism and i think it's also important uh with that said as well to not just read uh, marx Engels, lenin stalin and, and so forth but also to read walter rodney walter rodney uh for me how europe underdeveloped africa uh, was really pivotal in my transition from just being a uh, regular, quote unquote, uh, communist to understanding 
the dialectic between the global south or the periphery and the imperial core, and that without the liberation of African, indigenous, uh, Asian countries, uh, the removal of imperialism, you can't have socialism in the United States or whatever the fuck that is. And that was my big disagreement with a lot of white leftists where they got just so caught up on trying to save the U.S. and the flag and this. And it's like, this is not like worth saving. Why are we trying to save this? You know, and and understanding that. And, and I started piecing it together, too, because, uh, you know, I'm from New York. I live in L.A. right now, uh, but I'm born and raised in New York. And I grew up in a neighborhood of of a New York called Jamaica, Queens. Shout out to Ricky, by the way, who's in the chat. She's also uh, from Jamaica or, or lives, lived there. And Nicki Minaj years. from Jamaica, Queens. And Nicki Minaj, too. My sister went to her middle school. I'm not a barb, uh, but Nicki I'm a Min fan. <laughs> yeah, I like, I like Nicki Minaj's music, too. Um, and so I'm from Queens. I'm from Jamaica. And I would take the train every day. And so if you guys have been to New York, one thing you'll notice is that in New York, a lot of the periphery areas, you're talking about the Bronx, you're talking about Queens, Brooklyn, the peripheries of the city, you have the black and brown people who run the city, who work in Manhattan, who work in all the stores, who do all the cleaning, who actually produce the wealth of the city, but yet they are forced to live in the peripheries. They have the two-hour train ride back to Far Rock, to Jamaica, to the Bronx, you know, to, to the Heights, to Harlem, whatever it is. And the wealthy white people live in Manhattan or the hipster parts of Brooklyn or whatever it is. And I feel like that model is so emblematic of the world where it's like you have like Europe, North America that are like the, the core, the imperial core, and they steal all their labor resources, money, all this stuff from the periphery, Asia, Africa, Latin America, and even domestically within the U.S. as well, black and brown workers. Uh, and, and and seeing, uh, reading Walter Rodney's work, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa, uh, learning about dependency theory, learning about uh, Amilcar Cabral and Thomas Sankara and so many uh, amazing African revolutionaries that we never hear about, th that really changed my perspective, uh, even within Latin America, because one of my biggest beefs with a lot of the Latin American left in particular is that nobody ever mentions Haiti. And that shit bothers me. I've been to Haiti twice, um, by the way. And uh, when you want to talk about revolutionary momentum and revolutionary action, like Haiti, there's uprisings every week. There's giant protests with tens of thousands of people every single week, every Friday for years, for years. This has gone on and no attention has been given to that. So um, I just wanted to point that out. I don't know if you wanted to, to comment on that. It's really interesting. You know, I went to like a... Um, a free Palestine rally um, when I was in uh, New York last week. And it wasn't the biggest rally that they, it was organized by within our lifetime. It wasn't the biggest rally they've had, but it was big. And, and I was so heartened by the sort of conviction of the people there, a lot of Palestinian, a lot of, um, of Arab folks, and then a lot of um, comrades. Right. And I just, I was thinking back to like, 2021 when we were having these Haiti rallies <laughs> and there would be 40 people there, you know, there would be, <laughs> and a lot of them from PSL. <laughs> yeah. I'm, that is, I'm, that's just objective facts. I'm not making any yeah. commentary on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I just was thinking, you know, I'm so glad that we're, we're, people are pulling up for Palestine, but it's like, when will we pull up for Haiti? You know? Right. Um, right. It, we it's, it's as if even we on the left believe 
what the West says about Haiti. It's like we we are critical of what they say about every other place. But when it comes to Haiti, it's like, oh, yeah, gangs, um, destitution, et cetera, et cetera. And then the, the farthest people will go is like, well, the U.S. colonized it in 1950. And then they had to pay reparations for France. But no talk of the core group outside of mm -hmm. that. But let me tell you something. My <laughs> organizations, Haiti America's team kept that or kept Haiti front and center from the protests that were happening before the um, the assassination of Jovenel Moise up until now. So word to Erica, word to Jamima, word to Austin and the other people on that team. When people didn't give a fuck, when the, when the fervor died down, BAP, the Haiti America team was still on the case. We have a Haiti America team for that reason, because we understand the conditions of Haiti are central to understand the conditions of the Americas, period. Right. We understand how Southcom, the core group, the UN, all of those groups derive so much of their practice practice and hone their practices, their, their colonial practices in Haiti. And so even when we look at somebody like Lula, we're critical of somebody like Lula, who was at the forefront of the, the mm -hmm. occupation of Haiti in 2010 yeah. or after 2010. And so anyway, that's my, my Haiti rant, but like words of Batman. And then people will, people will just take the analysis and never mention our organization. And it's not because we want clout or anything, but it's because if you believe our analysis on Haiti, you got to rock with what we're saying about Ukraine. <laughs> it's not yep, cap. Like exactly. you got, you know, you got to rock with what we're saying about Nicaragua, about the 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 US pushing for war with China. You know what I mean? And so people so so anyway, um I forgot where I was going with that, but uh, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> but you know, reading it's important as you were saying to read racialized, colonized, Marxist, Leninist, because as we know, really after this, after the Sino-Soviet split, but especially by the 1960s, all the innovation on Marxist, Leninist uh, thought was coming from the global South and from racialized and colonized uh, Marxist, Leninist, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, Nkrumah, Tereus, scientific socialism, broadly, scientific socialist broadly conceived. And so we have to read them um, and not as addendums, like how closely they hew or don't hew to Lenin or Marx, but because that is why Marxism, Leninism is still relevant today because of the way it was um, applied to actually revolutionary situations um, and continues to be so. And so on the one hand, this idea that Marxism or scientific socialism is some white shit is obtuse and goofy mm. and jejune, but also the yeah. idea that the true Marxism Leninism is is only Lenin and Marx is also is equally goofy and it shows the sort of the imperial chauvinism, the white chauvinism, and also just the ignorance and 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 lack of knowledge of uh, our friends on the left, as Gerald Horn calls them. Mm. Yeah, shout out to Gerald Horn, amazing. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, probably my favorite historian. His books are amazing. Also, shout out to uh, Ajamu in the chat. Y'all hold us up. That is all we need. Shout out to you, Ajamu. Shout out to Bap. It's not all we need, Ajamu. It's not all we need. We're not stopping there. The dope Africans, it, it's not enough. Like we cannot, our cadre can't bring about the revolution alone. We need, we need all hands on deck. And so Bap, I'm glad Bap is leading the way, but we gotta, we can't just have dope Africans in our organization. We gotta produce and train up dope African masses. And I know you know that, Ajamu. Mm. <laughs> no for a uh, shout out to you jamu jamu's uh actually jamu was one of the people too who i learned a lot from and i would watch when i was becoming more radicalized and uh it's funny because i you know i guess we all i don't know if we all went through the stage but i went through the stage of like respect respectability politics like uh i was also trying to dress up and i was like you know that um i was always that nerdy kid from the hood who 
I wasn't like I was like second tier with the cool kids. Like I knew the cool kids, but I wasn't like the cool kid. But uh, I always wanted to like move up and 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 wear suits and get a job in the city. And after a while, I just realized like, man, this is bullshit. They're never going to see me as an equal. They're never going to see me no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I change the way I talk or 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 dress or whatever it is. They're never going to see me like that. Uh, and that was one of the realizations I had. I went to NYU for grad school and uh, I was also studying. Um, what was I studying? I was studying political economy at NYU. And, uh, and then, and then after I, right now I'm working in construction. So I totally changed, um, careers. And I just came to a, a moment where like, I felt like academia, uh, bourgeois academia, and th this dream I had of being like this liberal scholar in the city, like it was just complete bullshit. I came across communism and I became more uh, radicalized. Um, with that said, what are your thoughts on celebrity academics? Like, for example, Noam Chomsky and uh, Zizek and a lot of these people, or even some black and brown um, academics as well, who have been pushing some pro-imperialist propaganda. Like, give us a sense of, like, within the academy, what are some of the political struggles? Can you, how is it even being, like, a, a leftist or a communist in academia? Like, do people even, you know, let you talk? <laughs> Let me talk. Have you met me? <laughs> uh, well, the first thing we need to understand is that academia is the intellectual arm of the state, period. And yeah. what the intellectual arm of the state is able to do is absorb radicals like myself. It's able to to tolerate them to a certain degree. But, you know, um, in terms of it's it's difficult. I've, I've had more job interviews and I've had hot dinners. Right. And I get all these campus <laughs> interviews, then they meet me and they're, and yeah. there's some reason like, oh my. A, lot of, a lot of job <laughs> yeah. offers. I'm like, Oh, you really, you don't just study this. It's not just an obvious, right, an right. obvious inquiry. You really have those politics. And also you're kind of bitchy, which I am, whatever, you know, fine. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, like, I think it's really in terms of celebrity, I'm of two minds about this when it comes to left-wing folks. I think that, number one, nothing's too good for, like, the left. Nothing's too good for the working class. And so I do want us to have a broad, broader access to different publics. Um, and I do I do want a – I do want folks to have access to communist and socialist ideas. But it's just too easy to be unprincipled in academia because the culture of academia is so bourgeois, is so individualist, is so ensconced in neoliberalism at this – you know, neoliberalism as the current regime of capitalism that is really hard to remain ethical when you have a, a large quote unquote platform, right? It's really easy to forget like that being an academic is a responsibility, right? We have a responsibility mm -hmm. to de democratize resources and knowledge and access. That is our historical task as guerrilla intellectuals, et cetera. Um, but I, you know, celebrities in academia, it makes complete sense. It's another industry like anything else. We live in a celebrity culture. So why would it be that academics wouldn't have agents? <laughs> academics right. wouldn't be sort of clamoring to be the one to be able to say things. And I wouldn't care so much if it wasn't for the gatekeeping because it's not, they're real Booker T. Washington with it. It's not just that they have the <laughs> mic. It's that then they want to yeah. slap down the mic of everybody else. They want to gatekeep and dis literally discipline people who don't believe or think like them. And so I feel like if if it could be like 
if it weren't, if there weren't that aspect to it, I would, you know, have no dog in the fight. But because it's not only that I get to be the center of attention, but then I have to um, discredit and degrade and, you know, erase everything else. That's when it becomes problematic. Um, I always think it's weird for academics to have agents. Mm, <laughs> I just, yeah, I that really is fucking weird. That. It's, you know That's what I mean? Um, Talk um, to my agent. You know, but I'd be lying if I said it, I hadn't thought about it. But again, the reason why I thought about it was because, <laughs> huh, what would it mean for a wild eye radical <laughs> to have access right. to some of these spaces, right? Um, to be able to have a, you know, to be able to, to move, you know, these ideas beyond our, our like leftist margins. Um, but then I snap out of it because I'm like, I don't have the disposition to do all that. I'm not debating Candace <laughs> Owens. Like I'm, it's hands <laughs> for me. So that you would, know, that would not end well. Yeah. And so, you know, I think um, academia is a microcosm of society. And mm -hmm. for those, for, I do, I don't want to cede the college and the university to the liberals. I do take seriously what Walter Roddy says about being um, guerrilla intellectuals and waging struggle where you're at. Um, but it's hard. And we see a lot of people um, like literally die. Like I remember in the span of three years in the 1980s, hearing about how like June Jordan, Barbara Christian and um, Bebe Clark all died from from cancer. Like, Damn. and I don't think that that's ha they're all professors at Berkeley. I don't think that's happenstance that these three black women, some of the first women to get tenure at UC Berkeley all died in that very short span time because I do think this culture literally it can kill people like if you internalize mm -hmm. all that stuff but that's why it's also important to join an organization uh, to have you know you know comrades outside of academia but um you know the celebrity cultures it's it's only going to get worse if only academia becomes less and less accessible to to ordinary people so you know for those of us who are in it we we have to take a side like Paul Robeson said Mm, most definitely most definitely and talking about talking about that as well i wanted to ask you about uh, music taste because it's funny like in our in our chat before like um i think you mentioned that that you listen to all kinds of music listen to trap as well you listen to everything and i'm the same way too like i don't i'm not one of these people who are very dogmatic i'm like oh as a revolutionary or as a communist like you can't listen to this or you should only listen to this uh, what are your like? What kind of music do you listen to? Uh, what are some revolutionary artists that you like, and what is some just regular music that you like? No, no, don't ask me this question. This is where I'm <laughs> completely backward. I listen to trap music and like ratchet bangers and chill hop. That's it. Yeah, I don't nice. listen to anything that, like my girl Layla has amazing taste. She listens to Afro, all kinds of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. All that stuff. Erica. Don't don't ask me about music. I I'm <laughs> you don't want to share your Spotify playlist. It, no, <laughs> I, you know, I've never I've never used Spotify in my life. I buy all my music, mm. which is weird. But um, you know, yeah, I um I listen to music that makes me feel powerful, and that is yeah. music about twerking and selling drugs for some reason. So yeah, it's a real, no, it's I, one of my contradictions. It's so good. Honestly, we all have them, and. People would be lying if they said that they didn't do the same. I think I think a lot of people are the same way too. Like I listen to reggaeton that's like basic and and like mainstream as fuck. But I but then I also do listen to 
uh, in Spanish, uh, Nueva Cancion, which is like a, a new music, new genre of music that came about, especially in the 60s and 70s with the revolutionary movements, Victor Jara, Ali Primera, and Carlos Mejia Godoy, and, and so many other people. Um, so my playlist is random as fuck. Like you'll have some like 1970s, like communist, uh, indigenous anthem from like, you know, Latin America. And then it'll be like Meek Mill. Then it'll be like fucking, you know, Tego Calderon. And so it's, it's, it's mixed too. And I feel like, um, it's healthy to have those conversations. Um, and I, and I ask that because I feel like music is such a vital part of the left. Like if you go to leftist mm -hmm. events, uh, in Latin America, I haven't been to leftist events in, in other countries. I've, I've been to a leftist event actually in, in Bangladesh. That's another story. But um, in Latin America, like music and socialism are one in one. And uh, Victor Jara, who was uh, one of the Chilean communist uh, guitar singers, very popular, uh, he said that music is a very powerful weapon. Uh, and nowadays, the and this is in the 1973 when he was murdered, that he said that the imperialists are beginning to uh, subvert music. They they recognize the power of music. And in many ways, uh, so I'm kind of rambling here, but I was talking to one of my friends. Um, and he's an older Chilean guy. He was in this guerrilla movement called MIR, MIR, Movimiento de Izquierda Revolucionario. And his name was uh, Victor Torro. And he's an older guy. He's like maybe 60s, 70s. And so he was a guerrilla fighter in Chile, uh, fighting against the fascist Pinochet government. And he has an interesting story because he grew up in Chile. You know, he fought against the Pinochet uh, dictatorship. Uh, he listened to, he knew all these um, Nova Cancion revolutionary singers. Eventually he went to Cuba and eventually he ended up in the Bronx. And he ended up in the Bronx uh, at a time in the 80s uh, with the 70s and the, the late 70s, early 80s the rise of hip hop, right? Cool Herc and Africa Bombada and uh, a lot of the um, original uh, hip hop groups. And it's interesting because this is like an immigrant Chilean guy. His English is very poor. Like, you know, he like if you were to see him on the train, he just looked like a, a older Latino guy. But he literally like he would he would tell me stories. He's like, I witnessed like the, the rise of hip hop. And I saw and he's a communist. And he's like, I saw that the original like hip hop parties and events and, and and events that are taking place in the Bronx had a very pan-Africanist, a leftist uh, message to them. And, and it was like a, a political thing, you know? Uh, and then eventually he said over time into the eighties, he saw how a lot of the, these Zionist uh, music labels started getting involved started being about uh, drugs. And uh, in a way, like he said, it started getting more subverted. I found that really interesting, really fascinating, because it just shows you like, you know, th this is he's not like a scholar. Um, he's not like, you know, somebody who is even very well educated, but he's just he was just like a communist Chilean guy who grew up in the Bronx, who saw this happen in the Bronx at that time. Um, and I just find that so fascinating um, related to that. What do you think now about like the state of uh, music and entertainment and and how we're being sort of programmed like what do you think the programming is taking place now is it like isolation is it materialism is it like you know what do you think is is happening now 
Yeah. Sorry if that's know, a ran- I, that's a random ass question, by the way. Sorry. You know, no. What I think is, it's it's. I think it's alienation. I think it's individualism. I think it's idealism. A lot of idealism, like from how mm. we understand love, right? Yeah. Eros. Um, to how we understand Pan Africanism, like if like Wakanda, like more people know about Wakanda than they know about like you know Guinea Bissau, for example. Mm. Um. You know, it's a lot, uh, it seems, you know, so for example, I haven't seen the new Black Panther movie, but I know the premise, obviously, I can't get away from it. But like, you know, the fact that the Mayans are fighting like the Africans, but the CIA dude is good. Like, it's like, come on, bro. Like, in what world, (laughs) What like, except for Marvel, in what world is that the plot, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, I think that, um, but it's also entertainment in general. Like people want to be entertained and distracted ex- instead of informed and educated. And I think that entertainment does a good job of that. It's like food. You know, I was watching something about how like, you know, they're, you know, Doritos are supposed to have like the perfect combination of like salty and umami and crunch that makes you eat a lot of it. And I feel like with entertainment, it's the same way they they have the cheat code for like, what are the things that make you, that draw you in and make you like binge on Netflix or see 13 movies about some fucking white people fighting random crime. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> There's also yeah. a deep normalization and, and heroization of police and the military mm-hmm. state apparatus. They're always the good guys we know in real life. Like, they're odious and anti-human there's an odious and anti-human structure the military and the police which are two sides of the same you know two sides of the same coin um so i think that all of that is what is encouraged through through entertainment um there's a lot of multicultural liberal fantasy that you know it's interesting we see the more and more of like interracial couples and interracial um dialogue and living arrangements as fascism is on the rise as there's a deep attack on black studies and so-called crt which is just you know don't know any black oppression basically right and so it's a way to it's an imposition uh it's idealism right it's it's what people hope for a certain class of people or a certain group of people hope for in ways that are completely abstracted and deracinated from what's actually happening in society, right? Um, we're in danger. <laughs> we are under duress and people are entertained, right? People are um, captivated by liberal bullshit. And so it's actually, it's super dangerous. And that's why in some ways, I think that our struggle now is a lot harder and then, you know, it's really weird to compare now to like the 1930s or McCarthyism or whatever, but it, it's diff- more difficult because there's so much more distraction and there's so many mm-hmm. more ways to not be involved, to not pay yeah. attention, to be entertained and to negotiate the terms of your administration in ways that make you feel good. And as we know, oftentimes when you want to poison people, you make it attractive, you make it taste good. You make it look good. This is even in, in like nature, right? The poisonous lizards and shit, they're like brightly colored and all this stuff. And so like <laughs> we're we're yeah. willingly poisoning ourselves, um, which makes it so hard to organize and so hard to stay committed to anything that doesn't hold our attention for like, you know, 10 seconds. 
Totally, totally. The overstimulation. And it's funny, I sound like such a boomer when I talk to the Gen Zers <laughs> or the younger kids. I'm like, back in my day. Yeah, because um, it's funny. I, 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 back in my day, I used to watch Snick, you know, Saturday Night Nick, and watch the whole yeah. episode. It's I was having this conversation with uh, my wife, Ophelia, because her uh, nephew, I think I've told this story before, uh, we we're watching Independence Day, right? So we all, you know, I'm a millennial. I guess we all grew up with that movie, Independence Day. And it's a long ass movie. It's like two hours, and it's a slow build. Like it's trippy. If you watch older movies, you kind of see how it's much longer, drawn out. There's more of a narrative. I'm not saying it's that they were better, but it was just you know it was more drawn out. And movies nowadays are just jump cut, jump cut, jump cut. Jump. It's like a TikTokification of like media. And uh, my wife's nephew, he was just so bored with Independence Day. He's like, I can't watch this. This is so boring so long he wasn't being stimulated uh you know every few minutes or so and and it just like really opened my eyes to how overstimulated our youth are like these days with social media and just media in general uh with being presented with so many videos and images on, on a day-to-day -day basis and that really does impact your psyche and i feel like one of the you hit on a crucial point is that one of the methods of mass control it's not just imperialist propaganda, right? Obviously, we're talking about this, like celebrities promoting empire and imperialism. But I feel like you hit on something that's very crucial, which is distraction and overstimulation and getting to a point where there's so many shows, so many streams, so many things that you can do and, and watch that so, uh, slowly everything loses its value. And and that's why I brought up um, the video that, um, that you did a, a few months back or a year back that I really enjoyed it because it's like, you show that um, some people are putting less value into even just this, like conversations like this. People are like, next, you know, next, what's that? You know, they're just like, um, we're, we're being hardwired differently. We're being programmed to not even care about things going on around the world. Uh, and especially when it comes to regime change, that happens a lot when it comes to not finding out the truth about a particular story. For example, another example that I, I like to raise is Syria. Like you remember 2014, 2013, everybody was like, Assad is gassing his people, chemical weapons, he's murdering people. Uh, the same thing with Gaddafi, right? They were like, Gaddafi's uh, raping women and Gaddafi is uh, murdering uh, Africans and this and that. And then now it's like, first of all, that was all complete bullshit. But second of all, now that a lot of that information uh, has come to light, the fact that it was bullshit, everybody's too distracted and has moved on to the next thing where we're not going to clarify that and even care to follow up on that. And that really affects the way history is written because now from a historical perspective, we're just getting the mainstream media reports and the correction is never makes it, you know? So what now, do you, it's what do you now it's genocide. Now it's genocide. Everything is a genocide. And even when it's mm -hmm. proven to be otherwise, it's just like, well, pivot to this other war now. Like it's, <laughs> um, you know, and that's the other thing too, is that it's like the other thing about um, um, media is like the, the, the normalization of, of really gross violence um, yeah. to the point where so many people were commenting on like, so the Tyree Nichols video, how like they basically were doing like a premiere, kind of like how you have the countdown to your podcast. Damn. They were doing this for yeah. a video of a man being brutal, brutally murdered right and so there's something about the norm like just the the normalization of violence the quotidian access to brutality that we come to expect and that 
we have to have that proof to really be galvanized, right? So um, you have to see like life slip from somebody's body to be like, well, I guess the police are bad, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. It's wild, you know? But then you go home and watch SUV. So, or what is it? SVU, Lawner. So, <laughs> SVU, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's, you know, so it's, there's also just a normalization of, of, of violence and brutality and just um, terrible, you know, terrible treatment, rape culture, all, all sorts of things. And so when you're bombarded with this on a daily basis, that's how you're oriented. And unless you're very conscious of this, right, you reproduce those um, relations in your interpersonal relationships, in your organizations, in your institutions. And it just seems normal. Like people expand their capacity to suffer um, and then call it resilience. So, mm. <laughs> Most definitely. Um, I wanted to ask you, what have you, first of all, are you familiar with the uh, 1619 project. Uh, I saw this ad. I was talking to you about this before. Uh, I saw this ad. I was driving here in LA. I saw this ad, 1619 Project, The Greatest Story Never Told, Hulu. Uh, New York Times, uh, the New York Times, a newspaper that supports imperialist war, a newspaper that uh, supports Israel and supported South Africa, the apartheid state. Uh, New York Times, a uh, newspaper that had funding from a lot of former slave owners and just the elite bourgeois capitalist class now producing the story like the greatest story never told i feel like in a way uh the mainstream media and, and and these mainstream outlets are trying to have their own narrative about what actually happened uh with the brutal history of racism and, and slavery in the u.s that still lives on today uh what are your thoughts on this if you're familiar with 1619 um what are your thoughts on it and just the general mainstream media trying to rewrite the the history of, of slavery and imperialism. Well, I think Nicole Hannah Jones is a bum. <laughs> Putting it on <laughs> wax. <laughs> you know I feel the live out too, Nicole. But oh, anyway, um, what I think is that um, capital funds its own opposition. So mm. one might see 1690 Project is oppositional. And indeed, the way these goofy ass white historians have reacted to it makes it seem like it's this <laughs> radical path-breaking right. thing when really they have just been doing bad history right and and so uh, capital funds its own opposition and so i'm always weary of any story that powers that be are willing to tell so for example all of this um these university slavery studies now right are really taking off it's like now people can say oh yeah slaves and shit so it's like if people, when people are willing to admit certain things, what are they hiding? And then I also mm -hmm. think this this hyper focus on slavery keeps us very past oriented, or makes people extrapolate into the present in ways that are really, really problematic. So, for example, again, like the New York Times did this whole thing about Haiti and the you know the French indem the indemnity that Haiti had to pay to France and then U.S. occupation. No mention the core group, no mention on ongoing neocolonialism, ongoing occupation. And so sometimes being very past focused, it's hiding something that's happening right now, or it's also to distort the dynamics that are happening right now. And so it's, I, I, I think the 1619 Project is no different. And it's just, it's very sophisticated because then it recruits some of the best minds, uh, <laughs> you know, 
to to participate <laughs> as like as pundits or talking heads. And some of these scholars are sharp. Like and and it's uh, to be fair, Nicole Hannah Jones did take up Gerald Horn's seventeen seventy six um, thesis. It's actually the basis of how she starts this thing out. But because she's a, a bourgeois. She's not even, people call, keep calling her academic. She's a journalist because she's that. She doesn't have any bars. She doesn't have the range to actually do anything with it. And because she's invested in this American project, she's invested in this US project. And so even the radical scholarship gets um, harnessed to like goofy ass in. So that's what I think about the 1619 project. And then what, hap what keeps happening with so many things, it's happening now with the AP Black Studies stuff. Mm. We are forced to defend shit that's goofy that we that's not even that good right we go on this yeah. because the left is so reactionary we go on this this offense this blind offensive to defend some shit that was trash in the first place and then we marginal and then you know the the, the actual work you know the actual <laughs> struggle the things that we need to sustain us just get put called ultra leftists or pushed to the complete margins and so you know i, I think that you know that's what i feel about the 1619 project I, I, I'm sure. any any origin story that's meant to rescue, resuscitate, reimagine, re-envision, reinvigorate <laughs> this fucking settler colony. So oh yeah. I hate that dude. That word is so played out. Let's reimagine that. I'm like, no, let's get rid of that shit. Um I found it interesting that the poster has uh the boy has uh uh US flag and not like a red, black, and green flag or or something else, you know, like He's wearing the 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 young uh, black boy in the in the poster. Like this is everywhere. I was driving in LA. Like this is all over the city. I don't know if it's like this on the East Coast too, um, but it's this is like propaganda too, right? This is like in a way of trying to make people feel like, oh, like let's all come back together to the empire and we're gonna heal our wounds as a nation. And it's just like. You know, the subtle stuff like that, I feel, um, even though it may not seem that crazy from the onset, the accumulation of these images and this kind of propaganda uh, over time adds up. Uh, well, do you, you, do you remember uh, the Amanda yeah. Gorman thing? Amanda Gorman did that poem at the inauguration, and then there was like a cover of maybe The New Yorker where she's carrying uncle sam she's in her little product jacket and she's like carrying um, uncle sam yeah so it's like it's it's the same Damn. type of dumb shit like black people are gonna save this nation it's like yeah but you keep murdering all the black people who do good work, oh so. okay i think oh i think our oh amanda gorman wow i totally forgot of, my memory like sucks by the way but um i just totally forgot about that uh she sung the star spangled band or she sung like the anthem, no she right? she did a poem she did a poem oh, she did a poem like, okay something about the hill we climb or some shit me and jackie luke wow. dragged her <laughs> not her. <laughs> <laughs> we did a we did a, a talk about this uh yeah in 20 early 2021 i think because it was it was goofy yeah that's crazy man yeah this is this is insane to me um one thing i wanted to mention like you know we were talking a little bit earlier about different communities and some of the the programming that's going on one of the programming that's happening within the latino community uh in particular on stuff like netflix by the way the owner of netflix is like the nephew the great nephew of uh, edward bernays who was like a zionist propagandist who basically pioneered like color revolutions so that's fascinating um but one of the things with the latino community that does a big problem is the glorification of drug lords and drug violence 
you have all these shows like Narcos and El Sen Señor de los Cielos and La Reina del Sur. And a lot of these shows are being pumped out that glorify uh, these sort of drug lords and, and drug cartels uh, in a way that um, it is really interesting because a lot of the U.S. aligned countries in Latin America and the Caribbean obviously are major uh, drug trafficking countries. Um, and so I, I find that to be uh, really interesting as well. You know, you don't have and then the few shows that there are about revolutionaries like Fidel or Che or other people, it's all like he was an evil dictator and this, this and that, you know, so um, there is mass programming. People think I'm crazy sometimes. Um, I don't know if you if you go through this, uh, Sharice, but like when I talk to people about this, like programming and brainwashing and propaganda, like what the fuck are you talking about? And sometimes it can be kind of uh, isolating, you know, to like to to say that. Do you ever feel like that? Or I admit, you, I have, you also have a community. I only talk to people who think like me. My so you know, <laughs> I I fully admit I'm a preach to the choir person because I do think the choir yeah. needs to be preached to. Um, yeah. I, I've been told my politics are for the already, already converted. Absolutely correct. Because <laughs> what I'm not going to do is yeah. argue with no bourgeois Negroes. I'm not going to, mm. I'm certainly not arguing with no whites, period. <laughs> and so, you know, so I don't, I don't have too many of those conversations. I just, it's like, yeah. this is why I really admire people, you know, people like Erica, even somebody like Derricka Purnell, who, uh, you know, she will have conversations with people who are on the fence or with people who she's trying to, you know, bring over to abolitionism. Listen, I'm the second line. After after you knocked them, after you flipped them, then I it's like I got the readings. Like you know, we can, I can I can keep them on the side, but like I'm not I'm not doing that. That's that's not a good use of my time. For sure, no, same here. Most most <laughs> definitely, most of yeah. Oh yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Um, I'm not gonna keep you much longer because I know it's late uh, on the East Coast. But uh, before we head out, just to wrap up, uh, final I'm final question. I want to ask. You're in LA? No way. Yeah, way. Oh shit! What part of LA? Downtown. Downtown. Oh, okay. You know, uh, I'm actually like 20 minutes. I live in Highland Park. It's like a it's mm. a former Latino neighborhood, but now it's yeah. a lot of yoga mats and soy lattes and shit. Um, but that's cool. But you're but you live somewhere like you don't live in LA. Yeah, I live in Detroit. Yep. Oh, okay, cool. All right, that's you live in Detroit. All right. Yeah, shout out to Detroit. A lot of uh, amazing. Uh, Arab uh, revolutionaries out there had a lot of good uh, Syrian, Lebanese, Palestinian communist friends. Um, yep. Just to wrap up, what I wanted to ask you is what are some books or lectures or uh, revolutionary scholars, including yourself uh, and Dr. Gerald Horn and others that you recommend for people um, to check out? Yeah. So in terms of like, so um, like alternative media, like, you know, I recommend Black Agenda Report. Uh, by any means necessary with Sean and Jackie, Hood Communist, Mint Press, mm. People's Dispatch, um, the Tricontinental. I think it's like Red Condor is another one. Mm -hmm. In terms of people to follow, obviously Black Alliance for Peace, Community Movement Builders, AAPRP, Map and Doozy. I really like this page, Degro Capital, on um, mm. I think it's on Twitter and and Instagram. Um, uh, a Korean sister who's really dope. Uh, People's Forum. So those are just some people to follow to like cleanse your timeline and in terms of books and documentaries. So CLR James has this book called American Civilization that really gives an important analysis of American celebrity culture. Um, it's one of his most slept on books. It was not completely finished, but like it's I really recommend that book. Um, Organized Fight Win. 
obviously, bars, um, <laughs> decolonial Marxism and any Walter Rodney. I always re recommend Walter <clears throat> Rodney Speaks. It's my favorite. Uh, any Cabral, um, two pieces that were just recently recommended to me. Um, our people are our mountains and then the weapon of theory, which obviously, you know, both of these I was already familiar with. This person remind, uh, re reminded me. Shout out to Kali Akuno. Um, any Gerald Horn, but especially the trilogy, which is um, Dawning of the Apocalypse, the Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism and the Counter-Revolution of 1776. In terms of documentaries, there's Concerning Violence, um, The Battle of Algiers, Black Power Mixtape, uh, Bia Richards, A Black Woman Speaks. And then there's a channel on YouTube called Afro-Marxist uh, Afro mm, that has all sorts yeah. of clips and stuff on there. So Amazing. that's a good little uh, little starter pack for, a lot of it is US and Black, but a lot of, yeah. you know, it's Black internationalists or Pan-Africanists. So, but those are good places to start. Hell yeah. And shout out to Piolin's Ghost in Peru, reading your book in Lima, CBS. Ow! So you have fans in all the way in Peru, which, by the way, is uh, resisting a U.S.-backed uh, coup, yes, cool. uh, and indigenous peoples are fighting back there. Uh, shout out to me. Shout out to uh, Peru. Shout out to my compañero Yamir Chavur. Revolutionary greetings, comrades from Queens. Shout out to Queens, my hometown. Uh, shout out to Big Teal. Shout out to Ricky. Shout out to Joe the Red. Everybody for watching and listening. Sharice, uh, thank you so much for joining. Uh, it was really a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, I'm greatly appreciate your work your your books hands down like right now on my amazon wish list are like high up there i have a few gerald horn books up there too um i'm gonna make sure to check those out um send me your address is there any... i'll send you some copies for sure most well thank yeah. you i really appreciate that thank of you so course. much is there any anything that you want to pitch or like any way for people to follow you or anything like that before we head out or anything coming up Join a revolutionary organization, struggle within your organization, hold it to its highest principles and standards, um, and dealing from celebrity culture. That's it. Mm. Step step out of Babylon, as uh, Max Romeo, my, one of my favorite Babylon. artists, says. Step out of exactly. Babylon because it will suck you in, and it will. Uh, the devil always presents offers, and uh, we have to reject those offers. So, Thank you so much. Uh, I would love to have you, you back on. Have a great day. Uh, take care and shout out to everybody for watching and listening. Take care, everybody. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Do you know what it means to have a revolution? And what it takes to make a solution? I think I can't stop